Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Sons of History podcast. We're going to go exploring, exploring today, this week, whenever you're listening to this episode of the Sons of History podcast, the vaunted, the wonderful. What does vaunted mean, by the way, Alan? Vaunted? Yeah. I don't know. Where the hell did you get that word from? I don't know. It just came out. I don't... The vaunted. Anyways, uh, if you haven't yet, ladies and gentlemen, subscribe to the Vaunted Sons of History podcast. Uh, You can find us anywhere podcasts are available. Uh, Apple, Spotify. You know what? I'm not doing that anymore. I think I'm just going to say, if people don't know what a podcast is by now or where they are, I don't know what to do with these people. Yeah. I agree. And if and if they don't know where it is, I don't want you. I don't want you listening. I don't want you listening to the show. Anyways, um, we're also on YouTube. You may be watching us right now. If you haven't yet, subscribe, hit the bell, uh, leave a like and a comment. If you're listening on the podcast, if you know what a podcast is and you're listening, subscribe. Leave us a rating and a review. Find us on social media. I'm not going through all of that. Let's just get down to brass tacks about a problem I ran across the other day. Are you ready for this one, Alan? Uh, sure, go ahead. I know you see it on, on your notes. It has purple and yellow sock. I'm sure you were wondering what that meant. No. No, you weren't wondering. Good. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you what it means anyways. So. Is it something to do with LSU or? Uh... <laughs> that's what, yeah, exactly. So I am, uh, I get Madison. She's over here being a very good dog. Uh, I get her. We're going to go for a walk. We go for a walk several times a day. And there's a, apparently a party going on down the street, and there's these two teenage boys throwing the football. And one of them has no shoes on, but he's got two socks on. One is purple, one is gold. These are the exact colors of LSU. So I walk by, never seen these guys before, figured I'd be nice enough to engage in some type of conversation. And I was like, oh, LSU fan? And the kid looks at me like, I just fell out of the sky. And he's like, what, what, what do you, why, what, what do you mean? And I was like, well, your socks, they're purple and gold. LSU, LSU colors. One, we're in Texas. There are a ton of LSU alumni and fans here. So I'm like, dude, get your freaking life together. Uh, and he's like, no, no. And you know, it's like, it's these teenagers that are like this. They're like, no, 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 let's go. I, I can't do it. And I was like, whatever. And as I walk away, he's like, I hate LSU. And I'm like, why are you wearing their freaking colors? I didn't say that. Cause I wanted to just go and kick them in the, in the knee and be like, and just <laughs> bring them down a peg. But I was like, why are you wearing the colors then? And was it right for me to get that upset about it? I, you know, Kids nowadays, I, you know, I can't even. I like that. I can't even. I can't. That's what kids say. You know, did, did you, have you seen the movie, uh, The Big Lebowski? I have. Okay. Well, that's been my week. I am the dude and, you know, my bank account has been the rug. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Everyone's been pissing on it. I, you know, <laughs> you know that I was on the phone with the IRS yesterday for about an hour. Really? I, no, I was on I the phone with the IRS. Yes. Why? It, it, you know, IRA rollover that type of thing. They gave me the wrong information. They say, one of my uh, one of my banks said, "Oh, you have ninety days to deposit it." 
So I deposited it like on day 75 and I get there and they're like, no, 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 you're supposed to do this on day 60. Oh my God. We got the nine and the six upside down. Uh, and, and he goes, and the bank and the, uh, the institution who uh, mailed you this check didn't do it correctly. And I'm like, okay, and that's my fault. So I'm sitting thinking, all right, I'm going to have to be on the phone with them for an hour or two, which, which is exactly what happened. And then today I was on the phone with my CPA and, um, God, it was just one thing after another. And it's like, God, I feel like I'm just being pissed on by all these institutions. <laughs> and then listen to that Corrine Jean-Pierre with her fluttering eyelashes, you know, 30 times a second, telling me how wonderful our uh, border is and how much money we have in our pockets. Yeah, I know. I know. We've got to, you know, she's pretty. Dude, how much have you been drinking? Did you, did you? Should, let me should tell we, you something. I we think, need to let everyone know that. Okay, look, I I know I know you don't want to hear it, but I think she's cute. So what is wrong with you? No, I apologize. Really, what is wrong with you, dude? She's hideous. She's not pretty. There's a lot. There's a lot wrong with her. Me. Stupidity. Her stupidity leaves now, me. I'm not talking about her smarts, man. Right. I'm not talking about her smarts. You know, you know who was pretty. Who, you know who was pretty was that that Kaylin Mackel Mackin something. I knew you were gonna say that. Yeah, she's old news, man. No, she's like, not. That's just like it's time to put her out to pasture. Let that go. Let it go, man. All right. Uh, well, we've got a fantastic guest who's going to be joining us on this episode. His name is Reed Mittenbuehler. Uh, he's the author of several works. Uh, one that is very interesting, uh, for, especially you, cause I'm not a big, uh, bourbon drinker. I'm more of a beer guy. Uh, but I do, I don't mind a good bourbon every once in a while, but he's written a book called bourbon empire, the past and future of America's whiskey. Uh, he also wrote wild minds, the artists and rivalries that inspired the golden age of animation and his latest work. Wanderlust, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It's Wanderlust, an eccentric explorer, an epic journey in a lost age, uh, which I, as I said, I very much enjoyed. I wrote a rave review about it for the Epoch Times. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the life of the Danish explorer and adventurer Peter Freuken. Um, are you ready, doctor? I'm ready, doctor. All right, doctor. 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 All right, well... No more screwing around. Let's get down to it. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got Reed Mittenbuehler on the line. Reed, my friend, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Welcome to the Sons of History podcast. It is, I assume, the highlight of your career, and pretty much yeah. it's just going to go downhill from there. So I apologize. Um, but i tell you what. Um, if this is the highlight of his career... <laughs> Do we want him on this show? <laughs> it's like it's like that Marx, that Groucho Marx quote. Like, I don't want to be a club. Any club? I forget how it goes. Any club that would have me as a member, would I, do I want to belong to it? <laughs> well, it's kind of like when I say, if any girl wants to date me, then I don't want to date her. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh man, that could go down. Okay. Uh, anyways, dude. Uh, so. I, I read your book. I, I wrote a review. Uh, you gave me a kind uh, word earlier about uh, the review itself, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Wonderlust. I've already told you about it, but 
it was a really fun read and it made me like think like how is this guy even how's this guy even possible right without it being fictional um i mean i would say that anybody looking for inspiration to be like hey man what what can i do with my life or is is adventure really worth it um i would say read this book read about peter freuken which i would have called fruken or whatever had you not uh, allowed the reader to understand like hey this is how you say it um but i want to get into the start of how you came across this guy i believe it was at the explorers club so how did that come about and also just give us a brief breakdown of who peter freuken was yeah so it was at the explorers club on new york's upper east side and a friend of mine had become a member and, you know, you don't have a lot of old school explorers there anymore because they don't they don't exist. And a lot of their focus has shifted towards science. You've got archaeologists, you know, things like that. And a, a friend of mine, he invited me after hours. Um, He's like, you got to see this place. So I go to the mansion. And it looks like something is just throwback, you know, like out of Rudyard Kipling or a Wes Anderson movie. You got this wood paneling. You know, Persian rugs, overstuffed leather club chairs, and there's animals all over the place. There's a uh, a polar bear, a stuffed polar bear in the building. All of these artifacts from long ago um, expeditions. We go up to what at the time was called the trophy room, and it's this beautiful room, and there's all these animals in it. I got a cheetah. There's a tiger's pelt from a tiger rumored to have eaten 48 men. Yeah, stuffed emperor penguin. And there's a fireplace and there are these tusks around the fireplace that I, I believe Teddy Roosevelt might have donated. Teddy Roosevelt was a member of this club. And so we're just sitting there uh, sharing a couple whiskeys after hours, catching up. He's a friend of mine. And there's a picture over the fireplace of this guy. And he's got a, a wooden leg and he's got this wild beard. And I look at him and I remember just thinking, who is like, who is this? Like, what have you done to get your painting over the fireplace in a place like this? It's, it's got to be something. So I go up to the painting and there's a little plaque underneath it with his name, Peter Fraken. I've never heard of him. I look him up and then I start seeing all these stories about the guy. And I go down that rabbit hole and that's how it, it started. And Fraken, he was Danish. He was born in 1886. And he was in college, he was studying medicine, and he had this incident where, you know, a man died, they thought he had died, they pieced his body back together, it took six months, and then the man leaves the hospital, and within a couple of days, he's brought back because he was hit by a streetcar. And Freakin has this, rec this revelation, you know, it's like, life is short, I need to seize it by the horns. At that time, you know, polar exploration was at a fever pitch. You know, people hadn't quite reached the North and South Poles. It's all over the press. It's very romanticized. Um, and living in Copenhagen, like Freakin did, you'd have explorers coming through town all the time on their lecture ser series. So he's seeing all these explorers coming back from adventures, talking. He's like, I got to get in on this. And so that's how it all began. And he becomes an explorer. He goes up to Greenland on his first expedition. He falls in love with Greenland. It's this austere, you know, tough place to live, but he falls in love with the people, this lifestyle. And then he ends up settling down there for a while. He marries an Inuit woman. He is adopted into that community. Lives there for almost 20 years. 
and is going on all these expeditions, kind of at the very tail end of the last great age of exploration, suffers this accident where he, he loses his foot, which cuts off his exploring career. And then he takes all these experiences and he channels them into novel writing. He begins writing not in these novels do really well, become bestsellers. That leads him to Hollywood, golden age Hollywood um, in the 1930s, where he makes what at the time was the biggest, most expensive movie ever made. The director was W.S. Van Dyke, you know, the director of the Tarzan movies. Uh, he's kind of the James Cameron of his day. He did the Thin Man movies, if you're a fan of those. And so he's got this experience in golden age Hollywood, and then he ends up, you know, World War II. He's part of the Danish resistance. And as I'm looking at his life, I realize, you know, I, I wasn't really that interested in doing a biography, a straight nuts and bolts, just the facts, ma'am, kind of biography. You want to make a story out of it. And I realized that as a character, Peter Freiken is the 20th century, like all of these different threads in the 20th century, political, economic, cultural, collapse down to the scale of this man's life. Like there's a way to look at the 20th century and all the forces that shaped the time that he somehow plugs into kind of in this Forrest Gump way, a Zeligway kind of a, um, he's always sort of there, you know, popping up at all these great moments in history, playing small parts in it and just constant adventure uh, and a complicated person. Um, you know, he had interesting politics. He had a very interesting love life, just like all over the place, just as a character, absolutely fascinating, just kind of sucked me in. And I thought this really, his life is like a novel. And that's how the book started. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of exploration stories. Um, I've got like, uh, was it Henry Morton Stanley? Um, who I think about a decade before he was born located Dr. Livingstone. Um, so, so this guy, because he was born in 1886, and this, you know, there's still explore, exploration going on. In fact, I, I know there were two British ships that got stuck somewhere near Canada, and nobody survived on that one. So, uh, so you know, this is the age of the polar exploration. So, what exactly did? Uh, did Freud is it Freudian or Freuken? Freuken. Okay, so um, where exactly did Freuken explore, and you know what were his contributions overall to to polar exploration? Yeah, so for Freuken, you know, he really was at the tail end of what a lot of people have called the heroic age of exploration or the the great age of exploration, where you know when you look at these explorers in that traditional explorer mode, you know. Columbus or Vasco da Gama or, you know, all those kinds of names, Perry. By the time Freuken, you know, is coming of age in that very first decade of the 20th century, a lot of the, the blank portions of the map, um, you know, that people didn't really know what was there. You know, there are indigenous people in these parts of the world, but the outside world really didn't know. I mean, it would just be a blank portion on the map. They're being mapped by the time Freuken is coming, coming of age. Um, and so there was this kind of fever pitch among a certain kind of group of explorers to, you know, you want to get your name on that list of explorers who are, are known by one name, you know, like a Columbus. You don't have to say anything more. Everyone knows like who these people are. There's these last scraps of glory, I think, that people are fighting for. You know, and after that, it's going to become the moon. You know, where, where do we go next after you get to these last these last places? So Freakin, that's when he comes into the scene. And so 
you're seeing people fight for smaller and smaller scraps of this remaining glory. But the dangers are just as much as they ever have been. So Freiken, he stakes out for very northern Greenland, uh, this area north of Melville Bay, if you look at a map of Greenland, uh, near a place called Ita, and then Tui is where he lived. This was about as far north on the globe as human beings were known to live. It's really not that far away from the North Pole, just, just a few hundred miles. So it's very harsh. It's very austere. So what he did and you know some of his contributions are you know living up there well before we get to that section he did have an expedition he's part of the Denmark expedition Denmark expedition uh run by Ludwig Milius Eriksson to eastern Greenland which is even more isolated than the other part of Greenland just not a lot of almost nobody lives there and they had a lot of scientific discoveries there um so his boss on this expedition was the guy, Alfred Wegner, who later helped contribute to the theory of continental drift and later contributed a lot to meteorological science. So Freiken contributed a lot to that. They made a lot of discoveries about the weather and a lot of scientific discoveries that helped contribute to aviation. Um, they were launching these weather balloons into the sky and learning a lot about atmospheric pressure, all this stuff, you know, that was kind of unique to Greenland that, you know, and they, they wrote it up. A lot of people who were you know, just starting to design airplanes learned from that. And as far as the weather goes, they learned that a lot of weather is affected by the polar regions, which has a big contribution on agriculture, you know, like predicting crop. What are the crops going to look like this year? You know, that sort of thing. And also there's a military use for it, knowing what the weather is going to be. Um, so those are some of the scientific uh, achievements that he that he contributed to, as well as there was a lot we didn't know about migration patterns in Greenland with, you know, people, ancient peoples. Um, they discovered a lot of ruins that people didn't know about trying to figure out, you know, what were the migration patterns of, of some of the first human beings who came to this, this part of the earth. So Frickin was part of that. And really, arguably, what Frickin's biggest contribution was, though, is that he became part of the Inuit community. He married an Inuit woman. He was adopted into that culture. And... That culture, they had an oral tradition for passing down, you know, their, their history and their customs, but no one was really writing it down. And Freiken wrote it down and he became a kind of, I guess you could say, ambassador, emissary between the Western world and the Inuit. Um, he really did understand the culture. When, when I say he was adopted into it, like he was adopted, like the Inuit considered him one of them, like you are, you're part of us. And I talked to a number of Inuit people while, while doing the research for this book, and they tended to be all very surprised in reading his book at just how good they were. Like they, a couple of people brought that up. They're like, you know, he really, he's a source for us now today to understand um, just what our culture was like. There's a lot of things that have been forgotten. He and his partner, Freakin and his partner, Nude Rasmussen, as part of the fifth Thule expedition, it was this five-year plan to be a five-year expedition to visit all the polar peoples, all these Inuit polar peoples from Greenland through Canada, through um, Alaska, and, and, and then later Russia, they couldn't quite get into Russia. Um, as the world was changing in the 20th century, and as more and more people from the outside world moved into these territories and were changing the culture, and there's a lot more interaction between these different groups, Freakin and Rasmussen realized like it's going to change. Like these people's lifestyles, it, it's going to be different. You know, the world is evolving, and they just wanted to capture 
what does this ancient form of life look like? And they were the first people to photograph a lot of these groups and they just start documenting a lot of different things about their culture and customs. Because that was probably the biggest contribution. What was the time period? What the uh, the decade? Because you're saying that the world was changing. I mean, was were, are we talking post World War One or? Uh... Well, and during World War One, so there were sections, especially in northern Canada, especially in Greenland. People had been coming there since the 1700s. You know, you might get a ship of whalers or whatever. They might pop up up there. But the interaction was very, very minimal. Um, and even very little trading. Um, and so Freuken is doing this. He first went there in 1907. And then, you know, he stopped. He, he moved away from the Arctic in the 1920s. But that stretch of time between 1907 and the 1920s, like, a lot of changes among those cultures more and more people starting to to move north you know the hudson bay company in canada is moving north as you know it's harvesting more and more wood um and you see the culture change isn't it because freaking records this and these are my favorite parts of the book is you would go into these settlements and people would be wearing dresses like westerners might have worn a hundred years previous you know calico and they're listening um, to music or playing music on fiddles that was popular, say, 100 years ago when whalers were coming to those regions. But then as petroleum started to replace whale oil, people stopped going. So these people are almost stuck in a weird time warp. And Frickin's recording this. Um, and, you know, you're seeing more nations sending explorers up there for, you know, reasons related to nationalism. It was like, well, we don't know what kind of resources are up there. And a lot of these areas, for lack of a better term, were considered like no man's land. No one really had a claim on them. Um, so you were seeing more and more people being sent by you know, Norway was, was a big part of this, Russia, the United States, Canada, um, going to these very last regions um, to lay claim on them for various reasons. So... You know, this is the around World War One, the decade before and after. You know, speaking of of the cultures, that's something that I thought was pretty interesting about. I feel like I'm just saying the name wrong now after admitting that I had it down, but screw it, Freuken. Uh, <laughs> it seems like he was able, like early in the book, you talk about his education, so he had a good education, but then he goes off to Greenland. He does all all this stuff. He he marries into the Inuit community and he becomes more or less uh one of them and it's a com it's a completely different world uh not just that time warp that was there and yet when he gets out of that culture with the loss of his foot and everything he gets out of that culture he almost seamlessly gets back into the culture that he was raised in and how was it that he was able to simultaneously walk the line on both of those cultures and actually embrace to an extent, both of those cultures at the same time. I just find that pretty fascinating. And those were the things that fascinated me about him. And I found really admirable. So one thing about Freiken, and this is just an interesting part of his character is, you know, as an explorer, you're also a bit of a showman, right? You're writing books, you're doing these things to raise money for your next expedition. So, you know, they were entertainers in a way, in a way too. So Freiken, even though he loved the North, when he was back in European society, he would play it kind of simple. Like, oh, I'm a guy who just likes to be out in the wilderness. I just step outside my front door. We go hunting for our next meal, you know, like whatever. 
because he knew that that was the image people had of him. But he also kind of liked the fancy life, so to speak. I mean, he also liked the theater and he liked going to that. His third wife, uh, the woman who's on the cover of the book, I found out from reading some some of her writings, freaking knew he had an incredible sense of etiquette, like table etiquette. He knew exactly what kind of fork and what kind of knife goes with what kind of dish. So he had this very sophisticated sort of society side too. So he was these two kinds of people. And so is his best friend, Nude Rasmussen. You know, Rasmussen had grown up in Green. He was born there. His dad was a missionary. But then when he was getting, you know, to be close to teenage age, his dad sent him back to Denmark to go to a pretty tony boarding school, kind of, you know, almost the, the Danish equivalent of a, of a chote or something like that, um, you know, or an Exeter. So he was another person who kind of, you know, had one foot in each of these worlds and really loved both worlds. I mean, you don't have to choose one or the other. And that's something Freakin, you know, did too in this cultural exchange. He looked at certain parts of Inuit culture and he was like, I really like that. And there are other things he was kind of critical of. I don't really like that. So he pieced me as a la carte. Well, I like that. So I'll adopt that, but I don't really like that. And it was the same thing. And you see the same thing with the, the, the Inuit as they're introduced to Western culture. You know, there's ways that they, they bristled and they didn't like and that they were imposed upon. But then there are other aspects of Western culture that they gladly embraced, that they, that they liked, that made their lives easier. So, you know, you're getting into that, these conversations about colonialism, but there's this, uh, this exchange happening where each side is seeing parts or they're introduced to new things. And they're like, you know, what? I, that's actually a pretty good idea. I, I like that. I'll, I'll take that on that. Not so much. Um, so that's kind of how Freakin operated um, wherever he traveled. It was, you know, if I like it, I'll adopt it. If I don't, I won't. That was kind of his. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I was going to say, you often mention in your book, how Freakin demonstrated um, and you know explained clashes of culture uh, similar to the scene here where I'm drinking this classy uh, bourbon here, in your honor, by the way, for because of your other books. <laughs> but uh, I mean, what, but I mean, like, what did he understand about you know the clashes of the cultures? One thing, and, and this is you know something that I admired about he and Nude Rasmussen is that the world was changing, and they were pretty pragmatic. They looked at Northern Greenland, and they were like, "It's inevitable." Like change is inevitable. This is the history of, of human civilization is different groups, you know, clashing, it is word clashing or, you know, meeting or, you know, whatever. And he looked at the North and there were a lot of what, you know, the far North, and there were a lot of ways that the, you know, were being exploited by Westerners, but then there was also, you know, ways that the, the, you know, and, and I have stories like this in the book, you know, they, they wanted these things from Western culture was this exchange. He and he and Nude realized it's going to change up there. Like people are going to go up there. You know, they are going to open trading posts. You know, it, it, it's going to happen. So when they first went up to Thule in, North, in Northern Greenland, that it was still, you know, for lack of a better term, no man's land. It hadn't it wasn't claimed by any country yet. Denmark ruled over Southern Greenland, but the North was still kind of up for grabs, so to speak. There were and there were only a few hundred. Um, indigenous people that lived up there by most estimates so it very sparsely populated and i want to interrupt you real quick is uh is he the reason why uh denmark controls uh, greenland no that goes back to the 1700 to um 
Um, Denmark as as that it was as part of Denmark as, as its its colonial rule going back to the seventeen hundreds. Okay, so then he was exploring Greenland because of yeah, a lot of a lot of Danes were attracted to Greenland, and there were a lot of Danes living in Greenland. Um, yeah, so it was it was a it was a Danish territory, but the very north part of it wasn't. It's an island, so it's a little weird. Like, why don't they get the whole island? But it's because no one had really ever gone up there. You know, there's this ice cap in the middle. It's it's a hard place to navigate. So when he and Nude Rasmussen go and start their trading post in the very north, um, part of the reason was at the time, Norway was looking to establish a claim there. There were some fears, you know, among some Europeans that the Americans were trying to, because Robert Perry was going there and using it as an outpost for his trips to the North Pole. He kept trying to get to the North Pole and kept failing until he finally had some success there. Um, so there's a lot of jockeying among the world's nation, like, well, you know, who's going to really control this territory? And Westerners hadn't been spending a lot of time there. So Freakin and Nude wanted to go to establish their trading post so that Denmark would have more of a claim because they thought that Denmark generally did a better job um, of managing its colonial outposts than did Norway or Canada, the US or Russia. They were a little more critical of, of those powers. And they were like, it's going to happen. Like, you know, these people are going to be brought kind of into the fold of the rest of the world. They've been living so isolated. And they're like, and if, you know, they were just like, well, if someone's going to do it, why not us? Um, Nude Rasmussen had grown up in, in Greenland and had a lot of respect for the culture. He's actually part Inuit. Um, and they thought, you know, we'll open this trading post. We'll use some of the money that we make to fund healthcare, you know, some things like that. So they had a lot of kind of ideal goals for, their time up there. Um, that's the way they saw these clashes of culture. They had kind of a pragmatic look. They knew it was inevitable. Um, you know, they didn't use the language of, oh, it's one culture imposing on another. Um, they wanted to treat it like an exchange, kind of a mutual respect exchange. Like, like there were a lot they valued about it, but they also knew that there was a lot that they offered. And that's how they saw it. You know, it's, Actually, this this leads into my next question about a, a line that's in your book. It's a really great line. It says, evaluating the past is always a challenge, walking that fine line between smug superiority and warped nostalgia. And that's, I mean, that's obviously you're talking to yourself there, but that's also a line for all of us, right? I mean, that's something that we all have to consider. Like, how are we judging the past and also in particular these culture clashes and what came out of it and what was done during it. Um, and, and it's sort of one of the things that uh, you and I have briefly emailed back and forth over um, about the evaluation of history, specifically people whose views or actions may conflict with how we view things or maybe how we would have done things, and especially because we, we live with the gift of hindsight. Um, but I think Freudian could be attacked by both the left and the right uh, for certain things, which sort of makes him, uh, I guess, the you know, almost not the poster boy. So it's like, well, since both sides can go after him, maybe neither side uh, go after him. But when you say that's the challenge, evaluating history, what is the challenge? Or maybe more specifically, what is perhaps the temptation that you or, or writers come across um, whenever you come across that something maybe sort of 
hit you sideways and you're like, um, is there a temptation to make a judgment call in your writing or what? Yeah. I mean, you'll have your, <clears throat> the immediate impact, you know, like the, your immediate thoughts, but honestly, like I try to be very careful. Something that's that, <clears throat> sorry, I think it's happening a lot more in writing just in recent years. There's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of judgment of the past from that smug superiority you, know, you, you mentioned. And I think writers and historians have to be really careful about that. It's you know, the context of, of around these events as they're happening. It's, it's, it's all very important. I mean, these people were living in different times. There were different incentives. They, you know, there were whatever they did, there was going to be a different reaction in those times than there might be today. So I think we need to be very careful about judging them as quote unquote bad or quote unquote good and throwing purity tests against them and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, you do have like a temptation to judge, but one thing I wanted to do in this book is that's something that had been bothering me about a lot of more recent books I had read is like, man, people are really inserting, you know, very, very, present cultural values onto the past. And, you know, you're losing a lot, I felt like when you're doing that. And with this book, it was just such a cracking story that I also, you know, the pandemic was starting and a lot of people wanted to escape. And I remember thinking that, you know, I was like, oh, I, I just want an escape. And I, and I, you know, made a note to myself before I wrote, it. I was like, I don't want to pollute the book with a lot of commentary of that nature because it rips people out of the story and it's not always fair to the the people of the past and that was a goal that I had writing it was you know just let's stay in that time period as much as possible and this is a portal back into time so hopefully you can kind of stand in their shoes and move along the story with these characters and not you know stand outside of them and you know like you were saying like the Monday morning quarterbacking as always you know kind of easy on, on history but in the moment like these decisions are always much harder more complicated wow. there's always a lot of nuance that sometimes gets lost as far as what you're saying about Franken's politics one of the things that actually attracted me to him is I realized there are reasons you know especially with with Americans so American you know largely for an American audience although the book has been doing really well in New Zealand huh. <laughs> they're, they're really yeah in Australia um, I think that, you know, people from America's political left, there's a lot of reasons they might try to lay claim to, you know, Freiken. you know, if you're, it's like a game of kickball, you're trying to pick them for your team and people who might lean more right. There's a lot of reasons they'd go for them, but then there's also a lot of reasons people on the left might try to cancel them. Same thing on the right might try to cancel them. You know, this guy passes absolutely zero purity tests and He's such a unique character, but then I realized that to me makes him relatable. Like that's something I feel like a lot of people today, a lot of people have much more heterodox um, or kind of gray political views than they get credit for. But everyone feels like they're trying to, you know, people are trying to put them in a box, like they're trying to be siloed. And most people, you know, have much more complicated views than that. And so someone like Freiken, I love the fact that he's all over the place, but also still kind of coherent and that political groups today can't lay claim to him. No group really can. He's going to upset them somehow. But we're all kind of like that a little bit. I know I feel that way personally, where it's like, you know, there's some things I agree with the right on and disagree with the left on and things I agree with the left on and, you know, disagree. On, you know, so it's kind of like 
I, I personally sometimes can feel politically homeless. And I looked at Freakin and, and he was a bit of an avatar for that. I was like, you can't put this guy, you can't, you can't put a label on this guy. And I think a lot of people feel that way. You can't really put a label on me, but you're trying. So that made him relatable. So I wanted to really bring that out in the story too. Yeah, it's it was interesting. Always good to find a person like that. Uh, it reminds me of a phrase that I coined not too long ago, and it's one that I live by. Probably will get a tattoo of it on my chest, which is don't ridicule the circus unless you're willing to hire the bearded lady. So. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but hey. Think about it. <laughs> I got I've got a similar one. I, it's like, I, I think I should call it like Mitten Bueller's dictum or something. It's like, we all need to be a little more sensitive and a little less sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> That's my Right. Yeah. It's the meat in the middle. Yeah. That's all it is. Well, let's uh, dive into one of my favorite subjects. Um, as a kid, I read a book called uh, That Denmark Might Live. And it was about the uh, Dutch under... I'm sorry, not the Dutch, the Danish underground. So he was about... 54, 53 or 54 when uh, the Germans invaded. Um, and I know there were some, you know, it wasn't as uh, big as, say, what happened in Yugoslavia or in France. But you had the story of uh, Niels Bohr escaping to Sweden. You had... Uh, and they were friends. Like, uh, Freken had gone to school. They were schoolyard friends, Niels Bohr, the Bohr brothers. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, okay. Um, so... You know, uh, you know, uh, Denmark has its uh, definitely has its history. And I was telling Dustin that when I was in the Netherlands, I I visited a uh, shelter. Uh, it was an it was an underground shelter uh, where the uh, where the underground shelter during the war, and it was deep in the woods. So, tell us about you know his uh, Foinken's, um time as in the uh, underground in Denmark. Yeah. So Freiken's time. So the Germans hated hated Freiken because he was speaking out against Hitler and they were banning his books. And that was a huge market for his books. And um, he had, so after he lost his foot and he had settled largely back down in Denmark, he actually bought a very small island, Anahoya is the name of it. It's now a bird sanctuary and it was a working farm. And this is where he would write and he made money from the farming. Um, he, had a, he had hired someone to run the farm for him. And early on in the war, well before the United States is in it, and well before it's even a war, you know, he started to see because the his island is very close to Germany. It's, it's it's south in Denmark. He started harboring refugees, not just you know Jews as well as political dissidents, so people of all stripes. A lot of times, people who didn't necessarily get along, um, you know, they might have things they disagreed over, but the the one thing they did have in common is that the Nazis hated them. So Freiken was, you know, taking them on and it was kind of a way station as they would later make their way onto Sweden or maybe, you know, Canada, the U.S., wherever it was they were going. So that's, that's how it began. And then, you know, later after the Germans invaded Denmark, it's hard for Freiken really to be the best member of the resistance because he's known nationally he's kind of a, a a small hero you know he's made this movie i mean everyone knew you know knows who this guy is and he's huge he's six and a half feet tall he's got this beard the peg leg it's hard for him to really hide in the shadows or work covertly but he did what he could um he worked a lot as a reporter for politican it's done it's still to this day 
Denmark's major newspaper. So he could use his, you know, work as a reporter, kind of as cover. And then he would do things like, you know, he helped shelter uh, British and other allied troops as they came into Denmark. Um, if they were airdropped in, help them hide. So he did what he could late. And then his, his um, contributions to the resistance increased over time, especially as the war got more and more heated. And eventually he was captured by the, by the Nazis and he was put into a prison. And this was, you know, one of my favorite parts of my research is if you read his memoirs, he talks about escaping from the prison camp. And it's this whole story of daring do where, you know, the resistance blew a hole in the wall of the prison and he runs out and had a bicycle waiting for him because it's Denmark and everyone's riding bicycles. And, and that's how he escapes. And he gets back to the United States through Sweden. Um, that, that was the story he told in his memoir, in his American language memoir. In his Danish language memoir, he kind of downplays it a little bit like, ah, you know, the guards weren't paying attention. I just kind of walk out. So you're starting to see different stories. And the thing about Freakin is he was a tall tale tell. I, he would embellish. Um, I found in my research, his stories were largely true. I mean, the broad outlines were always largely true, but always little details inside, you know, where the fish was maybe, you know, 20 inches instead of 18 inches. He would kind of embellish the story. So his eyes on guard for that. But this is one place where I caught him in a really weird, a weird lie. I got my hands on his FBI file. The United States had kept an FBI file on him. And the real story about how he escaped from the, the Nazi prison camp is Freakin's brother, who Freakin didn't always get along with, had lived the life, the sort of life that Freakin had always kind of kept away from. He had become a doctor. It was this kind of stayed, you know, much more quiet sort of life. And his brother would criticize him. You're running around too much. You know, you should sell that, you know, what kind of life is this? Well, when Freakin was captured by the Nazis, um, Freakin's brother had connections through one of his patients um, that basically got him an audience with uh, Werner Best, who was the Nazi Gestapo chief. And some strings were pulled, and that's how Freakin was released. When Freakin found out about it, when he got out, he was livid. You know, he had this image as this swashbuckling explorer, and to find out that that's how he had gotten out of, out of, out of, out of, you know, the Nazis' clutches, you know, kind of rubbed against his honor a little bit. So then he and his daughter made their way to Sweden, and then they later made their way to the United States. MGM, the American film studio. Uh, which had made his first movie, Eskimo, kind of vouched for him as a refugee. Like, you know, we'll we'll take take care of, you know, the expense of, of bringing him in the country and that that sort of thing. Because they were interested. They had heard these stories about how he had, had escaped. You know, they didn't know. It's like, you know, it was World War II. It was hard to get, you know, it was hard to communicate. And they were interested in doing a movie about the Danish resistance. And I realized, I, I, I came to suspect while I was doing my research, I, you know, the story he told in his American memoir, which sounds something like Out of the Dirty Dozen or Hogan's Heroes or something, that story might have been an idea he pitched to the studio <laughs> as kind of an adventure movie. And that's the story he later told to, to America. And so, you know, it was an interesting story in its own right, you know, knowing that he had this image of himself and he didn't like, you know, finding out that, that, that's how he had escaped from the Nazis. But 
that's how he did. And then he wrote out the rest of the war in the US and in the US, the Danish ambassador to the US, this guy, Henrik Kaufman, um, a lot of Danish ambassadors around the world when the Nazis took over, they kind of declared themselves independent and would you know, help help the US as much as they could. He enlisted Freiken, because Freiken was very well known by that point in the United States to go around and kind of drum up support for Denmark. And his thinking was when this war is over, this country, the US is gonna be pretty much sitting on top of the world. They're gonna have all this money and they're gonna be rebuilding Europe. I mean, he saw it, he saw around that corner. And he was like, Denmark is gonna need some of that money. So you go out and you sell Denmark, tell your stories about exploration, do your thing, basically be an ambassador for Denmark. And that's what he did for travels all over the US, like all over all these small towns, um, you know, doing these lectures, talking about his books, but also he's got that little mini mission buried within it of selling Denmark, just so Americans had a positive image of the country. Speaking of telling stories that are largely true, uh, but in a lot of ways just make you look better than you really are, I think that's how think that's how Alan uh, goes around picking up ladies at, at the local bar. <laughs> You're welcome, dude. I, you know I love you, man. You know it's just a projection. You know I'm talking about myself. I apologize. You know, there's no response, whatever. You're going to go far, Dustin. And when you do stay there. I appreciate it. Uh, But I did want to mention or ask a question regarding uh, a largely perhaps untrue story. Um, And it's one that uh, Freuken catches somebody in. He had recently finished an, an expedition. I think it was his first expedition. And a guy, I want to say it's Frederick Cook, comes in and starts saying that he had he had he had reached the North Pole or something like that, but he had. Yeah. How did he come about uh, sort of being one of the first ones to be like, hey, this guy's not telling the truth? Yeah. So, you know, Freakin had spent all this time in the far north and he was there while there was this great race for the North Pole that was between a lot of explorers. But it ends up coming down between these two Americans, Robert Perry and Frederick Cook. And Frederick Cook was actually a pretty good explorer. Um you know, he had been a doctor in Brooklyn and had been on a lot of expeditions. People really liked him. He was very charismatic. People really didn't like Perry. Perry was aloof. He could be kind of a jerk. He just didn't have as much of a, a charismatic personality. And, you know, Perry had been trying to get to the North Pole, but a lot of his expeditions, he was turned back. And Frederick Cook was like, I'm going to be the first one to get to the North Pole. And so then it becomes a race between these two guys and the race blows up and you've got competing newspapers back in New York, the New York Times, the New York Herald Tribune, um, you know, each kind of sponsoring its own guy, you know, like they were, you know, you've got the Times really pulling for uh, Perry and the Herald Tribune really pulling for Cook. Herald Tribune at that time was a much bigger paper than the New York Times. The New York Times wasn't what it is today. It's, it's big. And so you've got these guys, you know, trying trying to get there. And Frederick Cook 
basically, you know, fakes his story. He was trapped out in the Arctic. It's it's a, you know, a couple of years before he finally makes it back. And when he does make it back, he's gone. You know, he's withered down to almost nothing with these two Inuit guides who were, were traveling with him. No one questioned the Inuit guides about the, the truth, the veracity of his, of his claims. They, they did later. But he comes back and he goes, I reached the North Pole. I almost died. Here's the story, et cetera, et cetera. A few days later, Robert Perry comes back and, and Robert Perry didn't actually technically reach the pole. People later concluded, but he did come very close. Um, it's very hard to navigate up there. You know, your your compasses get all thrown off because of the, the you know, the magnetic north, you know, thing. So he came close, but he didn't quite reach it. People have determined later, but thought thought he did, it seems like. So then it becomes this big contest in the press. Like, well, who, who was, you know, you got Frederick Cook. And a lot of people wanted to believe Cook because they liked him better, although he was the, the liar. So Peter Fraken, and this happened after Peter's first expedition to Greenland, before he went to live, you know, longer in Greenland. He was a he was reporting for Politiken. He was on the Arctic beat. Um, a lot of stories. So, you know, they wanted Freakin to cover this beat because he was a knowledgeable expert on it. And Freakin goes and he hears Frederick Cook with his friend, Philip Gibbs, who's a, a British reporter. And Freakin had lived there. A lot of people didn't know about the Arctic. So Frederick Cook is kind of selling them, kind of selling them a bill of goods. And Freakin's listening to this and he's like, parts of this story just don't quite match up. Philip Gibbs, who uh, had had debunked a couple kind of similar stories about other explorers, you know, in, in the past, he was kind of a reporter's reporter. Some didn't ring quite true about it for him either. So Freakin, Freakin was a little suspicious. So as Gibbs, uh, a number of people were eventually Cook was exposed, you know, as being a fraud or yeah. Cook was exposed as being a fraud. A lot of people didn't want to believe it, even, even still. You know, they wanted their hero. They wanted, you know, this idea of someone actually reaching this place, this mythical place, the North Pole. Uh, they wanted to believe that. They wanted their hero. Uh, but Freiken, Freiken was a source for Gibbs. Freiken's own paper didn't want to go after Cook. They had actually thrown a big banquet for Cook. They were celebrating what they thought was his achievement. Freiken was like, you know, I don't know. This guy's story doesn't check out. And they're like, we will not dine a man one day and then criticize him another. It was like they wanted to believe. And Franken, so they muzzled Franken. Franken couldn't write about it. And then after it was exposed, he did write about it. Uh, Cook, decades later, when Franken wrote his first memoir, Arctic Adventure, um, tried to sue him for libel or slander, whichever one it is, you know, one of those laws, tried to, tried to sue him. Uh, for something like $50,000 of fortune back then. And Freakin's response was, you know, okay, uh, does he want to take on my debt? <laughs> right. That's what I said. So, yeah. So that was, that was that story. It's, it's a great, it's a great story of this rivalry and how the press was involved and, you know, that people wanting to believe a story just because they like the personality of the person telling it, even though he's lying and Freakin was wrapped up in the middle of that exposing it. So there's a, a quote from uh, Freuken in your book that struck me because, well, a number of reasons why the book struck me is it's a lot of it is so applicable today, but this one is very applicable. Um, so it's a relatively long quote. Uh, he said, 
I said, all films about primitive people make a point of proving that the white man always ruined the natives who had lived in paradise until contaminated by civilization. Whether the race was Negro, Arctic Eskimo, American Indian, or Polynesian, the story was always the same. The white man brought disease and vice, he defiled the natives' paradise, and left them ruined forever. I could not understand why the white man should always picture himself in this role, particularly as it was far from the truth, at least as far as the Eskimos were concerned. So this is Freudkin saying this. Um, why do you think that there is this century-plus long sense of self-loathing in, in America and in the West predominantly? Yeah, a kind of guilt, you know, over, you know, over that. I mean, you could have many, many, many podcast issues getting into the psychology of that sort of thing and, right. you know, the, the guilt that, that sometimes surrounds it. And that quote in particular, I wanted to include that in the book. Getting back to the, the grayness that we were talking about before. So Fraken, before that quote, you know, closer on the heels of when he returned to the Arctic, he was sometimes saying the opposite. He was writing these books that were you know, and he would say very specifically, you know, the white man's greed and corruption. And, and, and he was very, very critical of Europeans going and what they were doing to the Inuit. And he was a defender of the Inuit. And he took that line. But then you have the line that you just quoted, which he said later. And, you know, he that quote was um, in relation to he had been asked to research a movie uh, for MGM by the producer Eddie Mannix, who if you've seen the movie Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie, Josh Brolin's character is Eddie Mannix. Yes, it is, is inspired by Eddie Mannix. Eddie Mannix wanted to do a movie about, they were interested in doing a movie about the Hudson Bay Company and about, you know, it being corrupt and its interaction with um, indigenous peoples in, in Canada. And Franken living there, Franken was very, he recognized, you know, ways that the Inuit were imposed upon and, you know, things that weren't quite as good for them because, you know, white men had come into their, their territory. But then he also recognized all these ways where life had improved. You would talk about hygiene and things that they wanted. And so he was of two minds of it. And so when he said that, I think that just reflects the balance that these stories are a lot of times a lot more nuanced and gray than a lot of people want to give them credit for. People want the story to be simple, but it ultimately comes down to individuals and their their actions. You know, it's it's always always a poor move to take a, a group broadly and ascribe, you know, like a set of actions or behaviors or thoughts to it. it it's always come down to individuals. And with Freakin, you know it was kind of one of those things. It's like, there's some people whose behavior is better than others. With Freakin too, and especially that quote, I really wanted to get the idea in there that we're, as humans, we evolve over time and our attitudes and our opinions change. Sometimes they go back and forth. Sometimes we're just in one mood and other times we're just in another, a different mood. So you would see these two sentiments that would seem to contradict each other coming out of the same man's mouth, but he made both of the comments. So I wanted to make sure I included both of those quotes to show that, you know, sometimes we might say something, and sometimes we might say something different, and the truth is somewhere in there. Sometimes it gets muddled, but it's usually gray. And that gets back to what we were talking about earlier too, about being slow to judge um, people's actions in these in these 
the cases where it was it was always messy and it was complicated and that's not to excuse certain things that happen but accepting maybe a little more ambiguity about it and you know I personally try not to get angry yeah um there's sometimes there's a lot of anger and cynicism uh looking at the past but I don't think that's particularly helpful you know in understanding it anymore and you know, it, it's also understandable um, and different people react to it differently. And so that's why I wanted to make sure I included both of those quotes, because that, that one struck me too. And I came across it because it was like, oh, that's different than what he was saying before. But it acknowledges this, this idea that um, this whole situation, especially as Frankenstein, was, was, was gray. Yeah. And I think it just comes down to pointing out, like, we all live in the gray. I just, and this is something Alan and I discuss pretty often on the show is, there is a like a constant searching we live sort of like in a culture where there's a constant searching for villains uh to the point where you know it's we no longer even look for heroes we just look for villains and almost like you said you could have multiple podcast episodes just based on this question alone but I think one of those things is we we look for villains so that we don't feel so bad about ourselves you know, and, you know, sometimes and sort of to his point uh, that he makes with this with this quote is like, if you look for a villain, you can't find one, then ultimately you just assume the position yourself and put yourself in the position of the villain or your your race or your country or your your time period. Uh, and it's just it's a very disturbing time. Uh, to live in with that where it's just like dude not everybody was a villain but just about everybody sans jesus christ lived in the gray you know so it, it, it's kind of a no saints no sinners yeah you know aspect to humanity with humans where you know it it, it ultimately comes down to actions right and behaviors and when you're reading, I think, you know, the best kinds of novels or watching the best kinds of movies, there's that acknowledgement, you know, no saints, no sin. You know, we've got stock villains and stock heroes. Those are the most boring stories a lot of times because I think most people reading them understand that they're not quite ringing true. Yeah. Like no one's really the Lex Luthor villain. You know, very, very few people are that or, you know, the, the shining hero. Like we're all flawed. We all make mistakes. We all say things that we sometimes regret. Um, then sometimes we say them again. And then sometimes we, you know, so it's like, you know, understanding that humanity and that that that's what's in all of us and and being being less judgmental. Um, you know, especially especially when looking at, at, at the past, you know, it's easy to cherry pick, but you realize, well, this is an incident that happened in this one minute, but this person had a whole life you know, many decades. So that adds context that I think is always important yeah. to include. I also think the thing you're talking about before today, that was, that was great. it's a great sentiment where people are looking for villains. It's been amplified, I think, by social media, which simplifies things and dumbs things down. And it's just a lot easier to get that quick kind of bite, you know, to make a, a villain out of it. Like I, I loathe Twitter personally, like I, for years, because I think it takes these stories and it disproportionalizes things and it creates a back and forth volley between people. It's, it's, a, it's a, almost a competition to, you know, it's, it's debate and it's not, it's not helpful. No, it's not. And 
Twitter now X, like it, it, the names change, but the, the whole thing is the same. Like I get the only alerts that I get are from people that I don't follow. And it's always very inflammatory stuff. Uh, but yeah. off that subject, uh, final question, uh, Alan, did you want to ask, well, you know what I'll ask. What's your since you wrote uh, Bourbon Empire? What's your favorite bourbon, or maybe your top three? I get asked that question a lot, right? Well, I can only imagine, and it's hard to pick one. You know, bur- you know, whiskeys are almost like you know your kids, I guess, right? You, it's hard to have a favorite. So for me, it depends on the place, the time, you know, the mood. There are times where what I want might be a weeded bourbon, like a or the cast strength makers, you know, then it might be something I want awry or something a little lighter. So I don't really have a favorite, but I do, I do tend to like my sweet spot for bourbon is stuff that's in the five to 10 year range. I don't like stuff much older than that. You know, seven years is like a sweet spot for me. Um, It gets too woody. There's too many wood tannins in those older bourbons. Uh, but a lot of times they're more expensive because they're older. So people kind of look at that and they think, oh, it must, it must be better. Um, I kind of, and more and more, I've been embracing, embracing the grain side of more bourbons, like these younger bourbons or something kind of appealing about those, even though they can sometimes be rougher and harsher, but you get a lot of really interesting flavors. So um, um, those tend to be my favorite. I like stuff that's higher proof and I, I prefer to proof it down. So some of these cast strength whiskeys that are coming out, I think are a lot of fun. Um, we could, we could do a whole other session on bourbon. So if I, so if I spent, if I spent $200 on a Johnny blue, would you laugh at me and say, dude, you could have gotten a bourbon that was like for 60 bucks tasted better. Well, Johnny Blue and bourbon are so different, right? Once right, I- right. I, I have a, I have, I, I don't want to advertise it, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I know we're not supposed to, but damn, I love that stuff. I like the, the, I do like scotch, um, but. But Johnny, Johnny Blue is a great, a great whiskey. I, I am fortunate. I get to drink it a lot because my uh, father-in-law, he's a, a physician and, and that just tends to be a kind of gift. And he's not a big oh, drinker. Well, give him our number and give him our name. So. And then, and so whenever you're there, there's always there's always blue because he gets a lot of it as, as a gift, and um, it's 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 really good stuff. Um, in the Scotch world too, though, it's funny. I'm a big fan of Brook Laddie. Um, they actually help sponsor, and they, well, they poured whiskey. I invited them. They poured whiskey at the Explorers Club when we did the book kickoff event, mm. and Brook Laddie. They've uh, revived this, this old distillery in Scotland has been has been has been revived. They uh, they do a really good job of some really kind of young. They don't put an age statement on their stuff, but they'll do younger stuff, and it's fantastic. Um, so the uh, Port Isle, if you like something smoky, but I think the classic Laddie, you know, the one in the blue bottle, when you drink it, it kind of reminds you of the sea. Oh, there you go. Well, yeah, I mean, was, what sea did you grow up or were you born next? To, actually, no, Alan, you're you were born here in the States. Yeah, uh, what, yeah I was the I was the first one in my family to be born here. What what sea is 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 your family from Mediterranean? The Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, my folk, my family are of um, their ancestors are Phoenician. Phoenician and Aramaeans, Aramaics, Aramean, whatever you call them. My uh, mine is uh, Scottish and French, so 
You're welcome. Uh, that ends that scotch whiskey. That's what I was was having. Alan, how are you feeling, man? Because I know you. Uh, I think you downed a half a pint. I'm I'm good. I I finished. Um, <laughs> I I knew I knew. You look like three sheets to the wind. Man. You know I wasn't going to, but you know, he's he's. You know, have you have do you ever watch? Did you ever watch WKRP in Cincinnati? Oh man, that's a that that's going back. I've seen it when I was a little kid. Right. But I don't really remember it. Oh, you don't? Okay, so you didn't see the one where uh, Johnny Fever was drinking. You know, the, um, they were doing a test about people's reactions uh, when they drink and drive. And Johnny Fever, the more he drank, the quicker he was. So <laughs> I have noticed that, you know, when, uh, when I used to do bowling, and this is a long time ago, um, when I was doing bowling, I actually performed better the more I drank. So... Maybe it relaxed. Maybe it relaxed you. Um, I bet. The, I bet you could say something similar about golf. No, nah, you Bull, know, I never bowling played. and golf, by the way, are are those, those are drinking sports. You know, I, I've never. I I worked at a golf club one time, a very exclusive one, uh, that uh, Bush Forty One used to play in. It was uh, called Lockenvar. It's uh, okay. near the uh, near the near near Bush Airport of all places. Um, so I never got to play, but I, yeah, I did bowling. Uh, now shooting range, I waited until afterwards because you know you don't want to make that. You don't want to make a mistake there. No, you don't want to make a mistake there. And I, I heard that that Bush would actually form, like, put together his own tournament, and he would call it the Bush League. All right, that's all I got for you, um, ladies and gentlemen. The book is Wonderlust. If you haven't yet, I encourage you to go get it. Uh, Reed did a fantastic job writing. It was a lot of fun. It's it's one of those books that I'm glad that I got to read. Um, I was happy to, and I'm glad that you reached out. Uh, you and I connected on the on the on the House of Horrors that is Twitter, uh, and thank God we did. So it was great having you on the show, Reed. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. All right. Well, that was fantastic. Thanks again, Reed. What did you think, Alan? Alan, where? Oh. Where are you, man? Oh, sorry, man. You know, after uh, after eating or drinking all that bourbon, I'm ready for uh, some nuts. I got some Eve, some pistachios. I, you've you know, always I, come across I, I like a guy who. I don't think I'm gonna be able to work uh... out tonight. Huh? I, I don't think I'll be able to work out tonight. No, probably not. Not with those nuts in your mouth. That's gonna be tough. No, yeah, well. Yeah. But I did enjoy the conversation. You know, I'm a big bourbon fan, and I like exploration. Although, you know, for me. You know, Morton Stanley, uh, Henry Morton Stanley, that's his name. So are you telling me that you would rather be in the heart of Africa than out in the cold of like the Absolutely. northern regions? You don't even have to finish it. Absolutely. I like tropical stuff. I don't like cold. You know, there was a, mo- there was a TV show, and I think I mentioned something about those two British ships. Um, I forgot. One was called uh the erebus erubus what what's that three-headed dog that guards hell i don't know go ahead well anyway that one in a, another book there. another ship dangerous or something i don't know it's one of those types of names happened about you know 40 years before he was born those two uh british ships they got stuck in the ice and they never found anybody 
Is that the uh, the Franklin expedition? Is that the one? I don't know. Or happened like in eighteen forty something like that. Because I know the yeah exactly. Because I know the Franklin expedition is like the famous British expedition where the guy uh, was one of the great explorers for for Britain, and then uh, he went out, and then you had all of these people over the years and then the decades try to find him or some remnant of his expedition. And I don't think they ever. I don't think that they ever did. It was it was two ships that got stuck up in the Arctic. Um, yeah, no, I, I've I've gotten on uh, like a big exploration, like polar exploration kick. Written a number of articles regarding like South Pole, North Pole exp- explorations, expeditions. Um, so I've I'm a big fan of the whole idea. One because. Like the well, the subtitle uh, has it's a lost age, right? Like so that that's that that is time gone by. Like we no longer do the polar explorations. Yeah, really. you know, I didn't I didn't catch the part <clears throat> that um, Neil that he was friends with Niels Bohr. That was pretty, you know, that's pretty interesting in and of itself. You know, mates with he might have he might have even met Heisenberg for all I know, Werner Werner Heisenberg. Yeah, you never know. Stop to listen to you when you got those nuts in your mouth. You know, speaking of, um, I don't know what we were speaking of, but I want to point out Madison is a really good dog, and I have done a tremendous job training her. So while we were in the middle of the conversation with Reed, there was some noise outside to which Madison bursts into the room and is about to go buck wild and start barking and looking around to see if she can find or whatever. So she comes in and I go like this, like that. She stops. I go like that. She sits. And then I go like that. And she stays. Now these are tricks, not tricks, but commands that I've taught her over the, over the past two and a half plus years. And she stopped, stayed or stopped, sat and stayed like with each command. You know, you're you're going to be uh, canceled for that in about a hundred years. I know, but <laughs> I'll be dead by whatever stat so whatever statues or books or whatever that are about you. They're going to be canceled, torn down. This guy treated a dog like a captive, <laughs> <laughs> a slave. Yes, a slave. She was a servant, not a slave. Um, I did want to ask one last question before we exit. What did you think about my coined phrase? Don't about the circus? Ridicule, circus? Yeah, don't ridicule the circus unless you're willing to hire the bearded lady. Well, I know what it means, but what's the point? Well, it it, it, it ties into what we were talking about. Like, dude, people want to like judge history so harshly. And take, for instance, the Barnum and Bailey Circus, right? Okay. You know, and circuses that would just travel around town and they would have the freaks, right? Nobody would hire them. Nobody wanted them. And guess what? The circus gave them community, gave them a job, gave them purpose. Okay. I, and it's okay, like, what, yeah, but no, you're exploit. Yeah, but you're exploiting them. And it's like, yeah, but you're judging the exploitation, but you're also avoiding them like the plague. You're not willing to hire them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that was that's my that's my line, and I really think that I should get that tattooed. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, go right ahead. It reminds me of an argument I had with uh, a former friend a couple of years ago. Remember when they had all those kids, 
They took pictures of them in cages. They're coming from the border. And they're all like going, oh, we need to do something to help them. I said, I bet you, I bet you $1,000 that not one of you is going to help out these kids. Right. And none of them ever did. Because, I mean, I told them, I said, you know, that all these pictures are bullshit. They're staged. They're, they're staged pictures. You can tell they're staged pictures. Oh, no, we're good. We need, you know. So, and they didn't. So yeah, and it, and it goes into what we were talking about, and to, to wrap up, and it goes into what we were talking about. It's just like it, it's so left right. People want to go after like, and it when you go after left right, it it eventually exposes your hypocrisy, or at least your political hypocrisy, um, in the long run, and then you look like a fool. So yeah. Anyways, all right, dude. Um, that's all I got. I will uh, chat with you later. It was it was fun having this conversation, um, and I guess we will uh, chat it up next week. Yeah. All righty. Enjoyed it. Good talking to you as always. And I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna have some water and maybe get something to eat. You do that. You do that. Good thinking. Luckily, I ate before we started, so because I am fresh out. Okay. Well, I had a day job, so there you go. Yes, you did. No longer, now that you're fired. <laughs> Sucks. See you later. Take care.